This is Joey Coleman, author of Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Joey Coleman to talk about his book, Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention, published by Portfolio Penguin. Joey Coleman helps companies keep their customers and employees. As an award-winning international keynote speaker, he's spoken on all seven continents. He works with organizations around the world ranging from small startups to major brands such as Volkswagen Australia, Zappos, and Whirlpool. His Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Never Lose a Customer Again, which was featured on episode 167 of the Marketing Book Podcast in 2018, offers strategies and tactics for turning one-time purchasers into lifelong customers. Joey is a very proud graduate of Notre Dame University, as they all are, and is a recovering lawyer. And interesting fact, after law school, he worked at the White House, the CIA, and for the Secret Service. Secret agent man. Joey, congratulations on Never Lose an Employee Again, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome back, friend. I knew this day would come. <laughs> Douglas, I got to say, I have had a lot of introductions on a lot of stages on a lot of podcasts in my life. That is by far my most favorite. You had me with the Notre Dame fight song. You built on top of that. When I thought it could go no higher, you added on the secret agent, man. You are the best. I am so thrilled to be back on the Marketing Book Podcast. I am not only honored to be a guest, I'm actually a loyal listener. I love what you do. So friends that are listening in, I'm one of you. I'm a big fan of Douglas and his work, and it is just a thrill to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks to everyone who's listening in. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I think I can stop my podcasting career now. <laughs> and just so the listener knows, if you haven't seen a picture of uh, Joey Coleman, like all of you, he is ridiculously good looking. So You're you too know, kind. You're yeah. too kind, Douglas. But it's true. It's uh, I've done extensive research on that. And I just wanted to mention this week, getting ready for the interview, I went back and listened to the interview that we did on that limited time series called Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Where's my bourbon? And that was so much fun. And I appreciate you speaking to me during the lockdown. And my family thanks you. It was like Doug Daycare, because then they didn't have to talk to me. You did. So that was, that was great fun. And what a weird time we were going through. 
you know, it was a weird time, and I commend rock star human beings like you, Douglas, who leaned into it and created opportunities for connection when the world was really struggling with connection. And I would posit we're still struggling with connection, even though most people are back to having their day-to-day interactions with folks. But being able to have a root beer with you on uh, our cocktails during the pandemic conversation was absolutely fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. And this book, there's a lot a lot of things to say about your book, Mr. Coleman. This book was endorsed by a number of authors, uh, including a few I've had the honor of interviewing, including Dan Gingas, Mike Michalowicz, Rohit Bargava, and Brittany Hodak. And, and there are many others that have endorsed it, big hitters all. And a lot of people listen to this podcast, and they are listening because they're trying to decide if they want to buy the book or not. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's fair, because they don't have time to read a book uh, every week like I do. Idiot! So if you purchase the book and you don't like it, Joey will personally buy it back from you. Now that is quite the quite the guarantee. <laughs> I noticed you, you include that at the very beginning. And I you, do. You even have a little bit of legal language in there, which, you know, your lawyers probably insisted you put in. But let me tell you something else about the book that I, I don't recall ever experiencing in one of the 400-something books that have been on the show. You get to experience the book. So you start reading it. You go to this one website, Joey Coleman's website, and you sign up. And while you're reading it, you get text messages and emails. And tell us more about this this reading experience you've built. Well, Douglas, I I so appreciate this conversation because knowing that the folks who are listening are book lovers, this is kind of designed to speak to my personal largest frustration as an author. And that frustration is this. You write a book, you want to put it out there in the world, and you hope people are getting value. You hope they're enjoying it. You hope they're working their way through the books and that if they had a question, they would reach out to you. But the practical reality is, as a reader myself, I don't always do that. It's sometimes hard to find the author's email. You're not sure if you want to bother them, et cetera. And when I wrote my first book, I thought, let's do an experiment. Let's let people sign up to experience the book and receive some communications from me. Douglas, it worked exponentially better than I ever could have hoped. I've had interactions with readers from dozens of countries, hundreds, if not, actually, now that I think about it, we're at over, I think we're at over 10,000 people that I've had direct communication with who purchased my first book. Wow. Right? So it's been amazing as an author to be able to do that. So when we were putting together the second book, Never Lose an Employee Again, I was like, I want to do all of that and more. Let's take the experiment and turn it into a bigger conversation. So we added some new things to the mix. We're building it out in an even bigger and better way, or at least that's my hope. And I will tell you, people are already signing up. The book, when we're recording this, has been out for a whopping two and a half days. (laughs) And we're already getting people signing up to experience the book, which puts me in direct interaction with the readers, which is something that I got to say as an author, I just absolutely absolutely love, especially since most of these folks are people that I've never met and never will meet in person. This gives us the chance to have some interaction, and it's just such a delight. So if you end up deciding to get the book, please, please sign up to experience the book, and I'll put in this little plug. I ask for your name and your email, but if you're willing to give me your cell phone number and you're willing to give me a good mailing address, 
let's just say there might be some other experiences that come in using those tools. Mm. So you don't have to give me those. Email's required to play, but phone number and physical address kind of can augment the experience. Mm. Well, when I signed up for it, I included my address and I was hoping that you'd stop by. So, you know, one day. <laughs> for, for you, Douglas. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. I won't be able to do that for everyone, but for you, I'll just show up on the doorstep ready oh, to go. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, I should also mention that there are, of course, you over-deliver like crazy. There's additional resources that you have uh, throughout the book at, an, at a website, at your same website, which you call the Vault. I actually stopped by and recorded what it sounds like when the vault door shuts. And it's chock full of great stuff. I've signed up for it. But you know what's even more helpful, I would argue? At the end of every chapter, every phase, every section, there are specific questions that you give the reader and their colleagues to work through like a workbook, really practical. So it's almost like you don't even want them, I guess, to go to the next chapter until they've read and thought about what the an- their answers are to the questions. Douglas, you're spot on. And in fact, when I originally put these questions in, I had some editors, some advisors, some other folks that were like, Joey, you're kind of implying that you want them to stop reading and answer <laughs> these questions and don't continue. And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not implying it. I'm almost insisting on it. And they're like, well, aren't you afraid that they might not come back to the book? And I said, well, here's the thing. I believe, Douglas, that there are three types of writers. There are writers that write books to make you think differently, writers who write books to make you feel differently, and writers who write books to make you act differently. And while I certainly want anyone that reads either of my books to think and feel differently, if they don't act differently, I haven't earned the investment of their time to read the book. I haven't provided the level of return on investment of their time, their commitment, their effort, their focus, their attention to merit them buying another book in the future or continuing the conversation with me. So I'm actually okay if you stop reading to do the questions and dive in. And in fact, I almost insist on it Mm -hmm. because I know from not only the research, but the experience of other readers that when you do that, your ability to implement what you're learning in your own organization skyrockets. Yes. And there was a book on the show uh, not too long ago called uh, Email Marketing Rules by uh, Chad S. White. And uh, he, uh, it's, it's actually in two editions. It's a, it's a big book. But what was interesting about the book is that you can buy it and it becomes really like uh, if you'd go through it and he gives you very practical things to do at the end of every section. And it becomes like a thing where you can audit your email. You don't have to do it one day. You can, you can work through it. And I think the, the, the impact and the lasting benefits will be much greater. And so that reminded me of what you've offered readers, where they can, they can work through this uh, at their own pace. You know, Don't try and fix it all right away, because if they are meaningful changes, they'll last and they'll have a bigger impact. Absolutely, Douglas. You know, it's interesting. People ask me all the time, whether it's in customer experience or employee experience, Joey, when are you done? And the answer to that question is never. Now, some people may look at it and say, oh my gosh, that feels really daunting and overwhelming. To me, that excites me. That says, this is something you can continue to craft and hone over years, over decades. Your employee experience is always evolving. 
You've got different team members. There's different conditions in the marketplace. There's different products and services you're offering. Your business is growing or contracting. So we shouldn't have a static approach to our employee experience. It should be a living document, a living, breathing interaction that is constantly being improved and enhanced. And we learn from things and we make them better. And we've got different employees that kind of challenge us in different areas. So we adopt new ways of thinking about it and new approaches to dealing with our people. I personally find that exciting, but I acknowledge and empathize with the fact that it can feel like, oh my gosh, Joey, what else do I have to work on? To that point, I'll say this. In my estimation, the experience you're creating for your employees is the most impactful business action you will take across all actions. Why? Because your people drive your marketing your sales, your delivery, your past, your present, your future, your customer experience. Everything is being driven by the members of your team and how they're showing up every day. Amen. And that gets to a point I, I feel like I need to make. Uh, you know, This is the Marketing Book Podcast, and each episode there's a there's always a new listener. And if you're a new listener, I am delighted you're here. <laughs> Welcome. And you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, this is the Marketing Book Podcast. Why is there a book about employee retention on the show? Good question. So, you know, uh, the risk of stating the obvious, marketing is no longer the domain of a handful of promotional activities. You know, consumers never really believed what companies said about themselves, and now they really don't. (laughs) Well, what they do believe is what their friends and even perfect strangers on review sites say about the experience they have with a product or a service. And of course, you know, with the rise of the internet and social media, everybody has a megaphone, so it's pretty easy to find people's uh, opinions about what they've experienced with your company. And the, the most important marketing, as Mark Schaefer will say, is your customers. Your customers are your most important marketing. And one of the most important things to customers is the experience they have w- with your product or service. You know, you could have a better experience and maybe a slightly more expensive product or a, maybe not. <laughs> not quite as good a product, people will still come back. But if you don't have a good experience for your employees, you're going to have a bad customer experience ultimately. So just to to echo what you were talking about that. And then 2023 seems to be the Marketing Book Podcast year of the employee because I kicked off the year, a Happy New Year episode with the book Happy Work by Nick Webb. And that was a book that talked. He, I originally he sent it to me. Says here's a marketing book you don't really have to read. But he, you know, I started reading it and I was like, oh, this is a marketing book. <laughs> it's it's all about the customer experience. And then quite recently, I had Tiffany Bova on about her new book, The Experience Mindset, which is about trying to balance employee experience with customer experience, like you talk about in the book with uh, Ron Tight, who's a, a past guest on the show, and then even. Scott and Allison Stratton, their book, uh, Unbranding, years ago that was on, and they explained that the most important branding department in your company is your human resources department, <laughs> not marketing, because it has to do with the kind of people you attract, how you treat them, how you empower them, how you train them. So with that said, this is very much uh, a part of marketing, and for those CEOs say, oh man, this is so hard, I, I don't know... Why is it becoming so complicated? Hey, that's why you make the big bucks, Mr. and Mrs. CEO. So I want to quote from the uh, couple places from the intro to set the stage here. And Joey Coleman writes, I've spoken to tens of thousands of business leaders, owners, entrepreneurs, and employees over the last 30 years across enterprises of all sizes operating in every imaginable industry on all seven continents. Most share a common complaint. 
I wish my employees cared as much about the business as I do. And you go on to write that, you know, you're a business owner. You've, you've also supervised employees when you work for other people. And you said the same thing. You said, I wish my employees cared as much about the business as I do. And you go on to write, in hundreds of situations, I've thought it. I, in thousands of situations, I've felt it. In more situations that I'm proud of, I've said it. And then while researching this book, I had a revelation. The solution to this perennial problem was right in front of me. Now when a leader, owner, entrepreneur, or employer of any kind says to me, I wish my employees cared as much about the business as I do, I respond, your employees wish you cared as much about them as you do about the business. Now, before you object, let me be clear. I'm not judging you. I'm willing to bet that you actually care a lot about your employees. You think about them morning, noon, and night. You think about your current employees, your past employees, your future employees who haven't been hired yet. You think about meeting payroll, covering benefits, giving bonuses, and growing the team. You think about keeping employees inspired, engaged, and retained. You think about their life outside of work, their families, their pets, and their loved ones. But here's the problem. There's a difference between thinking about your employees and showing them you care. Your employees wish you cared as much about them as you do about the business. They don't know you care about them as much as you actually do because you either aren't showing it at all or you're showing it in a way they don't see or feel. So, Joey, what's keeping the employees from seeing or feeling that their employer cares about them? Well, Douglas, in many ways, this conversation harkens me back to kindergarten. And you know, one of my favorite things that would happen in kindergarten was show and tell. Usually happened on Friday. Uh You got to bring something from home, stand in front of the class, show them what you brought, and tell them a story about it. And this was a great way to practice my early public speaking skills. Mm -hmm. This was also a fun way to learn more about the other people in the classroom because what someone picked often give you insight as to their home life, their interests, their hobbies, what they were excited about, etc. I think most business owners, and I'm guilty of this myself, spend a little too much time on the tell and not enough time on the show. Meaning, you may say to your people, oh, you mean the world to me, and oh, you're so great, and I couldn't run our business without you. And if you don't say those things regularly, I'd like to ask you why you're not saying those things regularly and showing gratitude to your people. But what they struggle with is, yeah, Joey, you said that, but you seem to want me to work 22 hours a day. You seem to be frustrated if I ever tell you I'm taking vacation. You seem to send me emails at all hours uh, expecting a response. You do things in your showing that don't align with your telling. And so I think the opportunity for employers everywhere, and not just employers, this applies to managers, team leaders, anybody who's responsible for the experience that the people around them are having, to think more holistically, more strategically, more intelligently, more emotionally about what you're showing your people versus just telling them. Well said. And let me just, before we move on, I just want to quote one other part from the uh, beginning. You're right. This book is designed to help you show, tell, and demonstrate in meaningful ways that you care about your employees individually and collectively in order to boost retention and bring out the best in your team. The philosophies, methodologies, and processes I describe in this book, all anchored around the first 100 days 
of the employee journey have radically changed how employees around the world feel about their employers. I've witnessed this firsthand with my consulting clients, received updates from audience members after attending my speeches and read stories of success in Best Places to Work magazine profiles and case studies. This shift has led to enhanced engagement, skyrocketing sales, and record-setting retention for the organizations that focus on caring for their people. And they systematically and consistently demonstrate this care. In short, the first 100 days approach to employee experience has worked in the past. It works right now, and it will work in the future for you. This concept is quite simple. To never lose an employee again, you must help your employees navigate their journey with you, caring for them and guiding them every step of the way, especially within the first 100 days at your organization. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So, Joey, at the beginning of the book, you explain that things aren't like they used to be in terms of uh, employer-employee relationships. And I'm guessing you included that because you still have to explain that, at least to some people or business owners or employers who still don't (laughs) don't quite get it. And for me, in my twisted mind, this brought to mind the Saturday Night Live skit from years ago with Dana Carvey, where he was a grumpy old man who liked things the way they used to be. I'm a grumpy old man. I don't like everything the way it is now compared to the way it used to be. Do you really encounter employers who still treat their employees like machinery, who I don't know, should be happy just to be getting a paycheck? Not only do I still encounter them, Douglas, I encounter them with a shocking level of frequency. Oh. <laughs> I was on a call. I was on a call a few weeks ago, and I'm, I'm going to be somewhat vague to protect the guilty here. Please. I was on a call a few weeks ago, and there were about 25 to 30 CEOs on the call. Most of these folks were running companies that would be somewhere in the 3 to $20 million range in terms of revenues, anywhere from maybe 15 to 20 employees to you know closer to three or 400. And the theme of the, but they brought me in to kind of talk a little bit about employee experience. And then we flipped it into a Q&A session. And the theme of the questions could best be summarized as, I don't like it this way. I want to go back to the way it was. <laughs> now, I, I make that voice and that's disparaging and forgive me for doing that. But that was the energy of the questions. And again, I try first and foremost as a human being to lead from a place of empathy. That's really hard to do, but I I really do my best. And so I can empathize with the fact that this isn't what you signed up for. When you became a leader 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, however long you've been leading your team or your organization, the landscape was different. COVID rewrote the rules. When I originally signed the contract to write this book in 2019, we were off to the races and I was working on it. And then the pandemic came along and I reached out to the team at Portfolio and I said, stop the presses. I always wanted to be able to say that, but I we weren't <laughs> technically at press at that point. But I said, we need to extend the timeline. And the reason we need to extend the timeline is my instinct and the conversations I'm having with my clients around the world indicates to me that the world of work is about to change in a way that is unprecedented 
in human history, number one. And number two, my instinct tells me if it makes this change, it will be a lifelong change for everyone who's currently alive on the planet. And at the risk of sounding egotistical, I think the reality has played out that way. I would challenge anyone to identify or point to a time in human history where a single event changed the global workspace at the exact same time in every country, in every state, in every jurisdiction on the planet. Some people say, well, Joey, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, the Industrial Revolution was really, really important and relevant to people in manufacturing, but it was also staggered depending on which country got it at the same time. The Industrial Revolution wasn't equally distributed globally at the same time. Some countries were ahead. Others are still, in many ways, coming into the Industrial Revolution now, decades and decades later. But here's the thing. With COVID, the landscape changed immediately. And the way the landscape changed is the relationship between employee and employer went from being a traditionally fixed location relationship to being a remote relationship. And so many leaders right now are saying, Joey, we just got to get people back into the office. Mm -hmm. My people need to be back here. And I often ask them two questions. Number one, do they want to come back? And number two, why do you want them back? And if we look at all the research, the answer to the first question is no, they don't want to come back. The majority of employees do not want to go back to five days in the office. Now, that often gets interpreted by leaders as, well, it's because they're lazy. They're sitting on their couch playing video games, do, do, do. No, it's they're tired of the commute and they're tired of the ridiculousness of being in a place where they can't be as productive as when they are at home. Because the research also shows the great majority of employees are significantly more productive working from home than they are working from the office. Not to mention that in the United States pre-COVID, 30% of workers were super commuters. What that means is they spent more than an hour and a half each day commuting to work and an hour and a half each day commuting home from work, three hours a day burned in commute. That vanishes when you work from home. So there's this huge opportunity to think more strategically about how we interact with our people and the type of experiences we're creating for them. And sadly, we're not going back to the old way of doing things because in the same way that your business faced this, Every business, every organization on the planet faced it at the same time. And some have realized, wait a second, we can hire employees anywhere on the planet. Firms that previously thought, well, we can't do remote in our business, figured out ways to do remote, which opened up their potential employee pool from a geography of give or take 30 miles from headquarters to a geography of, oh yeah, anywhere on planet Earth with an internet connection. Nowadays, everything's got to be better. Joey, let's jump into some of these things from the book. And one of them is a serious wake-up call. Can you remind listeners, employers, of the staggering cost of losing an employee? I got the impression that a lot of people don't, somehow they don't, this doesn't come top of mind. Well, I think people miss a lot of things when they think about the cost 
associated with getting a new employee up to speed and on board in your organization. Basically, it breaks down into three different costs. We've got recruiting recruiting cost. So all the cost associated with uh, doing job advertisements and taking somebody through your interview process, et cetera. If we look at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource uh, Professionals, what they find is that at least in the United States, the average cost per hire is $4,700. Okay, so we're automatically at fixed cost for recruiting people. Then we've got the training cost, right, of getting them up to speed. The Association for Talent Development found that the or- the typical organization spends somewhere between $1,300 and $2,000 per employee training them and getting them up to speed. But what isn't factored in in many. So by the way, if you do the math there, and I know folks listening were told there would be no math, you know, we should do round ballpark numbers. We're at about six grand per employee right there just to get a new employee in the seat and off to the races. Where it really accelerates is when we build in the turnover cost and the impact that has on morale and productivity. The best research that I was able to find on this topic globally says that to replace an employee, if you want to have the most accurate estimation, you should look at somewhere between 100 and 300% of their annual salary. That's how much money it's going to cost you to get someone new in that position that got vacated because someone left. Mm. And you know, it brings to mind something different, but over the years, uh, more recently, certainly, I talked to business owners and they would say, you know, I'm not so concerned about getting more customers right now. I almost don't want any more because I can't find the people <laughs> that I need. So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah. This is, this is a perennial problem. And here's the thing, again, back to our grumpy old man, it's not getting better. there's there's this fiction that exists right now with some leaders, not all, where they're like, well, as soon as people get back to work, it'll be better. Folks, when you look at all the factors at play, including demographics, immigration, loss of life, an aging workforce, uh, flexibility of remote work, geographical distribution of where humans live, the changes that have happened over the last three years in all of those categories combined to exacerbate a problem, a trend that we had already been experiencing for years, it just accelerated and enhanced it. And that trend is this. There are going to be fewer people every year going forward for the roles that are available in your organization. This is a demographics and population and logistics issue more than it is, oh, I just can't find them. You can't find them because they're not there. Mm. And by the way, to create more humans for the workforce is a minimum of an 18-year life cycle, okay? (laughs) And we're not doing that. We're not going out and actually creating more humans at the rate we need to Mm -hmm. uh, from a demographics point of view. So as a result, you're going to have to figure out how to do more with less. You're going to have to figure out how to be smarter about what you have your humans working on versus you have your technology working on. And you're going to have to change some of your beliefs around what it means to be an employee or what it means to be a worker to evolve into this new world we're operating in. Oh, that train has left the station. So quick uh, vocabulary question. Explain what is onboarding and and how is that different from orientation and and why is that important to know my sense is that a lot of 
listeners may be uh, thinking that the terms are somewhat synonymous. They do, Douglas. And to be honest, I understand why that is, because a lot of organizations use them interchangeably. But I think there's a challenge with that. So most organizations, what they actually do is orientation. I define orientation as an introduction to an employee's new surroundings and employment activities. These are things like, uh, you know, where is the bathroom? How long is my lunch break? What's my manager's name? What do I do if the fire alarm goes off? Ironically enough, these are very similar orientation activities that would happen if you went on a cruise, right? (laughs) Where are the fire extinguishers? Where are the lifeboats? What time is lunch served? How are the bathrooms located on this ship, right? These are not be part of our family, be part of our team, be part of our community for years going forward. This is how do you navigate the next two days to seven days? Instead, I would encourage folks to think about onboarding. I define onboarding as inviting in new employees using a managed, structured series of contacts designed to create a warm, welcoming experience. Let's break that down a little bit. Inviting in. It's an invitation to join something bigger than themselves. Using a managed, structured series of contacts. This isn't a haphazard. Well, if your uh, manager is Franco, uh, you're going to be having real struggles because he really doesn't know what he's doing. But if your manager was Maria, you would be loving life. She's incredible. No, it needs to be consistent and uniform across your organization. And it needs to be consciously designed not haphazardly thrown together, to create a warm, welcoming experience. We want people to feel connected. We want people to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. We want them to to feel. We want their feelings to be as much of a part of those first few days and weeks on the jobs as the tactics and techniques and procedures and methodologies that we're teaching them as part of our SOPs or standard operating procedures. Right. So it seems like a lot of companies are doing orientation and it's not really onboarding. And we're going to talk about uh, more about that. But let me just get folks' attention one more time. There's two really interesting uh, statistics here. You write that 40% of new hires quit in the first year, 40%, and uh, with about half of those leaving in the first 100 days. Hey, I know a guy who wrote about the first 100 days. And then 77% who quit could have been retained by their employers, and 69% of employees who did quit did so for preventable reasons. Oh, gosh, folks, there's so, you don't have to do everything, but if you do some of the things in this book, you can slowly stop, or well, you could probably quickly stop hemorrhaging uh, your employees. One other thing before we jump into the, the phases, though, explain why when you first hire an employee, you're quickly running out of time. There's a very serious shot clock going on there that I, again, think a lot of people don't realize because maybe they're thinking, oh, they'll be here forever. We got time. Absolutely. You know, and The part of the challenge behind this, Douglas, is if we roll the clock back 50 plus years, that's the way it worked. Back to the grumpy old man. Back to the grumpy old man stage. And and again, no criticism. And if you live during that time or you know people that live during that time, I empathize with you having that belief in that value system. Because it used to be when you went to work for someone, as long as you didn't royally screw up. As long as you were committed and you showed up every day and you did your work and you made steady progress through the organization, you could work for a company for 30, 40 years, retire with a pension and the gold watch and a thank you for your time and your service. Those days are gone. 
The shot clock is faster. The opportunities available to employees are more robust and more frequent and more global. And so the clock is ticking. And again, this isn't Joey's feelings. This is the research globally. This has been shown in every industry. You know, you mentioned the 40% on average that leave in the first year. That's across all workers. If we look at hourly workers, it's 50% in the first 100 days. 50% of hourly workers will not make the 100-day anniversary. This time period, the first 100 days, is more dispositive of the tenure and engagement of an employee than any other time period in the employee life cycle. I'm not asking you to run a marathon, friends. I'm not asking you to spend all day every day thinking about your employees, although that would be something interesting for you to consider. What I'm saying is make the investment early on. Double down to building a foundation of personal and emotional connection in the first 100 days in a conscious, conscientious way, and it will dramatically move the dial in terms of your engagement your productivity, and your long-term retention. So the journey of 100 days consists of eight phases, and they all start with the letter A. When you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, Joey Coleman, you notice things like that. (laughs) I love it. Let me state what the stages are very briefly, and then let's go through those and maybe let me ask you one or two questions about each. Would that be... That That sounds perfect. Okay, great. So phase one is assess, and that's when a prospective employee is kind of checking you out, basically. Phase two is uh, accept, which is where the job offer is extended and the prospective employee accepts. And then phase three is affirm, which is the, the period between acceptance and the start date when their emotional state takes a a dramatic downturn. (laughs) And we're we're going to talk more about that in a couple of minutes. I thought that was the most uh, interesting part. Phase four is activate, which is the new hire's first day on the job. Very important. Uh, Phase five is acclimate, which is where the new hire learns how the organization works. And then phase six is accomplish, where the new employee achieves the results they were looking for when they first decided to work for you, which really reminded me of never lose a customer again. And phase seven is adopt, which is where the employee's loyalty reaches a new high. And then phase eight is where the employee becomes a raving fan and zealous promoter. So Joey, before we get into those, would you say that all of them apply to every business or maybe just a few that they really need to do? Let's put it this way, Douglas. I've had the pleasure of working with organizations on all seven continents in pretty much every industry that you could imagine. And I have yet to find a business where the employees don't transit these eight phases. I'm not saying it can't exist. I'm just saying I haven't seen it yet. And if anybody listening, because I know you've got not only, here's the great thing about the Marketing Book Podcast. Not only do you have absolutely gorgeous listeners. Yes. Okay? I've heard about their beauty. I've, I've heard about their stunning looks. But I've also heard that they are wicked smart, as yes. they would say, right? And so folks, if you're listening and you think that in your business or a business you've heard of or an organization you know, that employees don't experience those eight phases, please reach out. My email is joeyc, J-O-E-Y-C, at joeycoleman.com. Send me an email. I would love to learn. (laughs) Here's the thing. They're going to experience this, but I think what's actually underlying that question for a lot of folks, Douglas, is, wait a second, Joey. I've never thought of these eight phases, so therefore, I'm guessing they don't apply to me. 
friends, just because you haven't thought of it doesn't mean it's not real. But if you're thinking about it, that's a good sign. It is. Exactly. Yes. The first step is acknowledging we have a problem. Right. Then right. we can actually do something about it. And the the aha moment for many readers and many of the folks in the audiences, I get the pleasure of speaking to audiences around the world. The aha moment often at this point in the conversation is we're only doing anything in about four of these phases. <laughs> that's okay though. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Because here's the thing. Your competitors are in the same boat. Yes. The other industries are in the same boat. Your opportunity is to start doing something in all of these phases and become an employer of choice. The type of employer that by the very nature of their operation attracts fantastic team members, folks that are committed to your goal, committed to your vision, and want to navigate an employee journey with you. So Joey, you live in Minnesota. Are there a lot of bears up there? <laughs> you know, we do occasionally get some bears from time to time. Not as far south in Minnesota where I'm at, outside of Minneapolis, but northern Minnesota, 100%. Okay, so I mention this all the time with so many of the books that are on the show that if a bear is chasing you and your friend, do you have to run faster than the bear? No, sir. You just have to run faster than your friend. There you go. So the point Joey's making here is that you don't have to do this perfectly. <laughs> just start doing it, and you're going to start outrunning your friend pretty dramatically. Uh, another very interesting feature of the book, which we don't really have time to go into, is where you outline all the tools that can be used in every phase of the book, which include things like in-person email, mail, phone, video, and gifts. And I think a lot of people who read that, at least I am, they're going to they're going to be surprised. They're going to say uh you're going to slap your head go, "Why were we not thinking of doing that? Of course we should be doing that." So, it's not just email, folks. There's some other things that will have a dramatic effect. One other thing, uh Joey, is that I don't sense really that any of the eight phases that you outline in your book are really terribly expensive given what's at stake. Is that true or? A hundred percent. They don't have to be. No. You can make it expensive if you want to. And by the way, if you don't pay attention to the phase, it gets really expensive, <laughs> right? See that earlier statistic about 100 to 300% of the annual salary is the cost of losing and replacing an employee. Yes. But when one of the things that was really important to me, Douglas, is there's over 50 case studies in this book, as we mentioned, from all seven continents, but more importantly, from businesses of all all sizes, shapes, and feelings. And so we've got folks in the book that have two or three employees. We've got folks in the book that have over 100,000. We have folks that are operating in a small town. We have folks that have a global reach. And here's what we have found is across all of those organizations, you can do powerful things, create amazing, remarkable experiences and touch points with your team members in each of the eight phases often for zero hard dollars <laughs> yes. spent, okay? It's going to require some intentionality. It's going to require some focus. But even when we think about the tools, 
you probably already have the opportunity to interact with them in person. You probably already have the opportunity to send them an email. To send them something in the mail is going to maybe cost you a couple dollars, depending on where you live. You already have phones, and they probably already have phones. You already can film a video on your phone, right? We've got this amazing <laughs> camera right on our phone. You don't need to go out and buy a fancy video camera, lighting rig, and sound team. You could shoot a selfie video, and the research actually shows it converts better than the professional video. But that's a conversation for another day. And last but not least, gifts. The thing about gifts, Douglas, is people often say to me, well, Joey, you know, I'm not sure that I can afford gifts. Well, let me ask you this. Think of the best gifts you've ever received. If I were to ask you to make a list of the 20 most significant, most valuable gifts you've ever received in your life from anyone, a spouse, a partner, a parent, a child, you know, a coworker, a colleague, a boss, whatever it may be. If you were to list those 20 gifts out and then associate the expense of that gift, the majority of items on that list would cost less than $50. Why? It's not about the dollars. It's about the thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. It's about the personality and the personalization of the gift and how it relates to the receiver. Yes. And at no point in the book, and I've read the book so I can affirm this, does Joey recommend giving a new sports car to every new employee? So uh, if someone says, I can't afford to do what's in Joey's book, I don't know. I'll I'll either eat my hat or... (laughs) I would be I would be very surprised if someone says they can't afford to do this. Let's jump into the phases real quickly here before we wrap up. Phase one is assess, and like I said, that's when an employee, a prospective employee, is checking you out, basically. And there's a section on page 36, which could have been all about marketing content or sales outreach. <laughs> it's just directly applicable to marketing and sales. You write, too many employers begin the job posting or introduction to the company by talking about themselves. (laughs) Most think that they really stand out from the competition by emphasizing their mission statements, core values, and best business speak in these initial impressions. But for the majority of potential employees, this feels like unnecessary noise. The prospect is more interested in things like, what is this position really like? What will I do all day? (laughs) Well, I like my boss and my coworkers. Am I going to be well taken care of if I decide to become an employee? How much am I going to be paid? Is this company still going to be around in a year? The criteria prospective employees use to decide if you're a good employer aren't necessarily addressed in the mission statements and marketing speak that you share. A well-designed job posting establishes a solid foundation for the employment journey at the earliest interaction. Joey, can you talk more about what a remarkable job posting looks like? I think a remarkable job posting needs to keep in mind that it is designed for the individual reading it. It's not designed for the company. Okay? I understand this desire. I understand and empathize with this desire to, well, we got to tell them how awesome we are so they want to come work here. There will be time for that. But in a job posting or an advertisement for an open position, what you need to do is draw the attention of someone to the point where they say, that sounds like the kind of place I want to work. That sounds like the kind of place where I would thrive. That sounds like the kind of place where my skills, my abilities, my attitude would be valued and appreciated. The way to do that is to lead from an employee-centric perspective. 
as opposed to an employer-centric marketing approach. What are, what are some of the other big things that companies can do in the uh, assess stage that they're probably not doing that would just be enormously impactful? Well, I think in terms of the advertisement or the job listing, let your brand spirit come out. Mm-hmm. Be pl- if you're a playful organization, be playful. If you're a colorful organization, be colorful. Let your brand show up in the description. Don't make it feel like every other posting on Indeed or LinkedIn or whatever it may be. Number two, be really clear about what someone needs to do to succeed at your organization. Very few employees apply for a job and say, well, I hope I'll be average there. I hope I'll just be able to tread water. No, employees want to know, am I going to be able to get promoted? Am I going to get a pay raise? Am I going to get increased responsibility? Mm -hmm. What is life going to look like in the future? Start to hint to those things as part of the process and be very clear about what they're going to get in terms of benefits, in terms of perks, why it's great to be an employee, and more importantly, how this process is going to work. The number of employees that I have talked to who said, Joey, I applied for five jobs and I never even heard back from three of them. I'm not even sure if they got my resume. I'm not even sure if they saw my application. Folks, if you are not telling a prospective candidate what your timelines are going to be and then living up to those delivering on that promise, acknowledging receipt of their application, letting them know what your review process is going to be, putting them into a great interview experience, telling them during the interview and after the interview what's going to happen next and when they can expect to hear from you. Frankly, forgive me, I'm not sure you deserve to be in business. Right. I, I, I really do because it, like, at some point, enough is enough is enough. This behavior is so ridiculous. It's so out of control and it has become so epidemic in our society that employers treat people like this before they're even even employees. Ugh. And if an if a prospective employee has these type of feelings going through your application process, it is not setting you up for success for them wanting to stay around long term. Mm. So there's an author in the Minneapolis area, Lee Sauls, who uh, has been on the show twice. And he writes about selling differently. And he explains in his book that, in his books, that there are certain things you can do to differentiate your company. But the number one thing you can do is to sell differently from the way your competition's doing it. And one of the big takeaways from his books is that the way you sell is a preview of what it's going to be like to be a customer. Unfortunately, a lot of companies have a terrible sales experience for their customers and they and they leave. Joey Coleman then writes. An organization's application process offers insight about what it will be like to be an employee. Oh, it's so it's so true. Just take a look at it, folks, and you will start to think, oh gosh, you know, if, if they if we're treating them this way, we're probably not gonna answer their questions when they're here. We're not gonna help them out. It'd be impossible to get in touch with HR. They're gonna be twisting in the wind. And people don't like that. Let's jump to phase two. Phase two is accept which is where the job offer is extended and the prospective employee accepts. And let me jump to page uh, 72. And I could just hear Joey Coleman saying this. It's great to feel wanted. It's powerful to feel wanted. It's remarkable to feel wanted. If you know that feeling, if you've experienced that feeling, consider this. Is your job offer to the candidate going to evoke that same feeling of being wanted that you've experienced in the past? Many organizations see acceptance of the job offer as the most important 
part of the accept phase while failing to see the opportunity to create a milestone memory in the actual extending of the job offer, a feeling of being wanted. And then on page 83, you write, when a prospective employee decides to accept your job offer, a physiological reaction takes place in their body. (laughs) So Joey, what is the opportunity here for employers to capitalize on this feeling of euphoria? The opportunity is to stop thinking of extending a job offer as a transactional experience and start thinking of it as a transformational experience. You are inviting in this prospective employee to the next chapter of their lives. Is your invitation feeling like a memo that was written by a lawyer who was paid by the hour to fill it with legalese? Or does it feel like a wedding invitation. What I mean by that is think about a time where you've gone to the mailbox and you've opened the mailbox and you've seen an oversized, beautiful envelope. And on the front of it was written your name in beautiful calligraphy. And when you opened that envelope, inside was another envelope. And when you opened that envelope, inside was another envelope. It was like the Russian nesting dolls of envelopes, right? I wanted to go to that wedding. I didn't even know whose it it is yet. Exactly. You haven't even read it and you're already feeling this is going to be different. Yes. This is going to be special. And then you get a message that says something like, we would invite you to join in the celebration of these nuptials. You know, the favor, usually spelt with a U, British style, the favor of your reply is requested. It is a formal invitation to something magical that marks the milestone of the next chapter. Go look at your current offer letters. Okay, you can press pause on the podcast. Sorry, Douglas, I'm making, I'm treating them like they're readers of my book. Okay, forgive me. Maybe don't press pause on the podcast. But when you're done, go look at your existing offer letter and ask yourself, does this feel like an invitation to the next chapter of this person's life? Mm. Or does this feel like a rote transaction that if we erased their name, we could replace it with any other name on the planet? and have the same lack of emotional impact. Oh, yes. And the, the chapter is just full of great things that a lot of companies do and uh, things that, that you all can be doing. Let me jump to uh, phase three. This is a firm. And this is, like I said, the, per- the period between acceptance and the start date. Uh, when the, the, the prospective employees or when the future employees' emotional state takes a dramatic downturn. And I, like I mentioned, I found this to be the most interesting and surprising phase and a big opportunity uh, for employees um, because my sense is that of all eight, this may be the one that's most overlooked. I don't know. You could tell me. But let me quote from page 117 where you write, despite the positive emotions at the moment of acceptance, things begin to deteriorate in short order. An underlying current of doubt which the newly hired employee may not even be consciously aware of, starts to counter any positive feelings. The longer this hire's remorse goes unmitigated, the faster the employee's anxiety grips their emotions. The quiet zone between acceptance of the job offer and the first day on the job further exacerbates the problem as the void in communication is filled by the employee's self-doubt. So, Joey, talk about the this roller coaster of emotions that employees go through and what smart employers are doing to assuage that. 
Well, I know listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast spend a lot of time thinking about marketing to customers. Mm -hmm. So you're probably familiar with the concept of buyer's remorse, the scientifically proven experience that when a new customer makes a purchase, immediately after that, their brain fills with dopamine. They feel joy, euphoria, excitement. This is the product that's going to be the answer to my prayers. This is the service that's going to take me to the next level. But almost as quickly as that dopamine floods their brain, it starts to recede. And those feelings of joy, euphoria, and excitement are replaced by feelings of fear and doubt and uncertainty. What if the product isn't everything it was cracked up to be? What if it's broken? Will I be able to get a refund? What if the service they promised me in the marketing materials doesn't match the service I actually experience? We're back at the home office celebrating that we landed a new customer. Meanwhile, at our customers' homes or offices, they're saying, I'm not sure I made the right choice. Mm -hmm. If we don't close that delta in feelings and close it quickly, we're in trouble. As it relates to our customers, This scenario is exactly the same as what happens with new hire's remorse. An employee accepts the offer. They're feeling excited. Oh, this is going to be fun. I made it through the interview process. I'm the one that they liked. They chose me. They picked me. They're telling their friends and family. Of course. And they're having that dopamine rush and they're feeling the euphoria and the possibility and the opportunity ahead. But as that dopamine recedes from their brain, and it's the exact same biochemical reaction is what happens with a purchase. As that dopamine recedes from their brain, they begin to doubt the decision they just made. Maybe I should have negotiated for a better package. I think I could have gotten more salary. I should have asked for more time off. You know, I was applying for three other positions at the same time, and I hadn't heard back from the other two, but it felt like this one was going to expire, so I had to accept the offer. But gosh, I wonder if I would have ever gotten the offers from those other places. We're at the office celebrating that they accepted our offer. They're at home asking, did I make the right choice? Mm. New hire's remorse scientifically impacts every new hire, regardless of their position, regardless of their role, the type of salary you offer them. None of that matters. If they are human, they feel this. And Douglas, the great majority of organizations, you're not alone in reading this one going, huh, hadn't really necessarily thought of it that way. Or, ooh, I bet this is an opportunity. The great majority of organizations have never even thought of this. And the reason or the proof that I point to for that is between the day that the employee accepts and they say that their start date is going to be in two weeks. And when they show up for the first day on the job, two weeks later, there is zero communication, Mm. not a text, not an email, not a, hey, here's what you should wear the first day. Hey, here's where the office is. This is what time to show up, et cetera. There is a void. And that void of communication is only filled by the voice in the new hire's head that is saying, I don't know if you made the right decision. In fact, I think you probably didn't. Oh, yes. So let's jump to the next one because our time is limited. Uh, Phase four is uh, activate, which is the new hire's first day on the job. And Joey, I had thought that this phase should be more like my first day uh, in the military. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. You slimy scumbag, get on your face and give me 25. But as I read that chapter, apparently that is not a good approach. <laughs> well, you know what? What works for the employer of the United States military might not be as equally applicable to your organization. Okay. Okay. So, well, I was, you know, I thought that might be good. But you write that 74% of job candidates say the first day will affect their decision 
about whether or not to stay for more than a month. Now, back when I had employees, the way I got around this was to pay them in cash at the end of each day for a week or two to make sure they would you know, form the habit of returning to work. But apparently, <laughs> Joey doesn't recommend that either, listeners. So. I'm not, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a fun experiment to consider, Douglas. Absolutely. But yeah. I think I know a lot of that was said in jest, although there is a thread we could pull on about the importance of when and how you pay your employees. But the, I think, bigger piece of this puzzle is that you hit on exactly what are you doing on day one to maximize the likelihood they come back for day two? Because the research also shows 4%, 4% of all employees will go to work for the first day on the job. They'll spend the whole day there. They'll go home that night and will never return again. 4% wow. of employees work one day and that's it. And this number is actually going up. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so that first day is really important. And in so many organizations, it is a haphazard afterthought. We're not prepared. We don't have the desk. We don't have their computer. We haven't set up their email. They don't know who their boss is. They get sent to a lunch with a bunch of people that don't even know who they are. It's not a warm, welcoming embrace. And that's what the first day on the job should feel like. In fact, in the immortal words of country music legend Bonnie Raitt, you got to think about giving them something to talk about. When they go home that day, at the end of the day, to their partner, their significant other, their parents, their children, whoever it is they live with, or if they live by themselves, whoever they're calling on the way home, the first question their loved ones are going to ask is, how was the first day on the job? Your goal should be to give them a remarkable answer. Yes, yes. It's a great chapter, lots of stuff in there. And then kind of, I don't know, you, you sent me on an emotional roller coaster as I read this book because I started thinking back through my first day at some jobs and they, <laughs> they were not good. Oh, it's and, a disaster. Oh, I, I, I did some surveying I, early on. Sad. Oh, it's so true. You know, you think about that first day on the job when there is so much possibility and there is so much potential. It's at the risk of using a sports metaphor. It's an unforced error. If an organization, you know what their first day is going to be. You actually told them what their start date would be. You know when they're going to show up. You know where they're going to show up. You know the role they're supposed to have. And so many organizations just drop the ball. They don't deliver on what should be a really easy experience to create. Oh, yes, yes. Talk about unforced error. As I'm reading through that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these are easy things to do. They require, you know, a few minutes of planning, <laughs> you know, a little more. But, oh, please, folks, uh, do that. Hey, let's jump to the next one. Phase five is where the new hire learns how the organization works. You want to work here? Close. I'm going to quote from uh, page 149 and ask you to elaborate on the four R's quickly. From my speaking events, consulting engagements, and thousands of hours of research in, in organizational behavior and operations, I've found that almost every organization defines their onboarding activities in the acclimate phase differently. Despite these variations, every company must teach its employees four key components of their new job, the requirements, the roles, the responsibilities, and the relationships. What's interesting, Douglas, is when we're in school, we hear about reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? (laughs) Right. The three R's. I'd like to build on that with the four R's. A new employee coming in doesn't know very much about your organization at all. Yeah, you told them a little bit during the interview and in the job posting, but you've been doing this for months, years, maybe even decades. 
They've been doing it for hours. What you need to think about are those four things. First, the requirements. What do you need to do in order to be successful in this job? What are the tasks? What are the specific checklist items that we're going to need you to do? How can we train you on those and make sure you're clear on our preferred way of having you do that? Then the roles. Okay, where do you fit in the structure of the organization? Who's working with the project before you? Who are you going to be handing off to? How does your role fit into the overall ecosystem? Number three, the responsibilities. If you fail, if you drop the ball, what is the consequence? What is the outcome? Because lots of times an employee has been so conditioned at previous jobs to wear blinders and only think about the sole silo of behavior that they're operating in. We need to expand their consciousness and expand their understanding of how integral they are to the entire organization and how those responsibilities link together. And last but not least, number four, the relationships. Who Who are the people in this organization and not just the person you report to? So many organizations are like, your boss is this person and they think that's it. No, introduce them to the people who they're going to be collaborating with on their team. Introduce them to folks to other departments. Years ago, I had an opportunity to work for a company called the Corporate Executive Board Mm -hmm. and I took it upon myself because I wanted to really understand this organization. In the first month on the job, I set up meetings with people from every department in the organization. Now, I did this on my own, and a lot of them, frankly, thought it was weird. Here's this new salesperson, and is like, hey, I want to talk to somebody in the accounting department. And they're like, why do you want to talk to someone in the accounting department? And I said, because when I'm out selling our services, I might get questions about how we do invoicing, how we think about billing. I can make up answers, and salespeople, we're really good at doing that, or you can actually teach me what are the answers you'd like me to give. Douglas, what was fascinating about this is within a month, I had friends, I had colleagues, I had folks in every aspect of the organization. And if I had a client who, for example, came to me and said, Joey, we're not going to be able to make this month's payment. We're on a little bit of a time crunch, but uh, we can do a double payment next month. Does that work? I could say, let me call my buddy Vanessa Mm -hmm. in accounting and I'll get this sorted for you. And then I would call this person that I already had a pre-established relationship with and say, hey, I know it's a deviation from our usual rules, but this guy is good for it. Let's extend him credit for 30 days. I know it's going to work out. Those are the things your new employees need to know. Now, the last thing I'll say on this, Douglas, because in the acclimate phase, what often happens is organizations think, I know, we'll teach them everything they need to know in two days. We'll do training in two days. (laughs) Folks, the amount of time you spend acclimating your people is directly proportional to how long they will stay with your organization. Mm. If you train them for two days, you should not expect them to stay for two years. You want to be spending the time that is commensurate with an investment in them, their understanding, their comfort, their certainty, their familiarity with how you do business so that the time evolves with them. Their understanding, of course, will deepen. Their clarity of things will deepen. But we want to build this over time instead of fire hosing it into two days of training and then throwing them in the deep end and saying, good luck with it. Yes, you know, It seems like the subconscious message through a lot of these phases is 
we want you to be successful. We yes. want you to be successful, <laughs> whether the whether they say that or not. And it really jumps to phase six, which is where the new employee achieves the results they were looking for when they first decided to work. And you write that this goes beyond simply making money and could include goals like career development, promotion, or skill set acquisition. Unfortunately, and ironically, many employees never fully reach this phase, and even fewer companies pay attention on an individual employee basis to this important milestone in the employee journey. But you write that some of the savviest companies in the world make make the most of this, and they're actually maybe even teaching employees about setting goals and, and tracking progress. Talk about how, I guess, uh, the minority of companies are, are getting this right. Well, I, I think the secret here is when you're in the accomplish phase, right, we need to be tracking progress towards goals and then celebrating when they're achieved. Mm-hmm. I think many, let, let's put it this way. I think many organizations pay little to no attention to this phase. Mm-hmm. I think some organizations do a decent job of tracking like, well, how are you? Are you learning things? Are you are you becoming more productive in month four than you were in month three? And they're, they're kind of paying attention How's to that. Going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what they're not doing is celebrating when that person actually achieves the goal, when they live up to the expectation, when they do the thing that will actually mean you are winning, you are succeeding here. Yes. Because here's the thing so many employees go home at night and they're like, I have no idea if I'm doing a good job at work. Oh gosh, I've I've lived through that. I have too. And and they want to do a good so many employees it drives me crazy. I'm gonna rant here a little bit. Sorry, Douglas. It drives me crazy Let's when let I'm the talking begin. To, oh my gosh. When I'm talking to leaders and they're saying, you know, oh, our people just aren't engaged. They don't care. They're not involved. No, you aren't involved. <laughs> you aren't involved in where they're at in the process. You aren't paying attention to what matters to them. You aren't tracking their progress and celebrating with them. They're living in a state of fear, doubt, and uncertainty about whether they're either going to have a job next month and you're going, well, why aren't they more productive? You can't be productive if you're not sure where you stand. We need to help our people understand where they stand, what direction they're pointed in, and then we need to help them to take the steps necessary to move towards that goal. Yeah. And these could be goals that the employer and the employee develop together, right? And they should be. Not only can they be, they should be. And I get, as an employer, you want to have clear goals. You want to say, hey, by this point in our process, you should be able to do X, Y, Z. You should understand our process for doing this. I get that. But the way you really get them bought in to the fact that you care about them is when you look at goals that they have. Mm. I have a comment in the book that is probably, uh, I, I tried to put, as you know, Douglas, I tried to put provocative thoughts into my books, but things that make people go, gosh, never thought of it that way, or oh, I'm not really sure I agree with that. Here's, here's a provocative thing that's probably at this point in the conversation, if you're still listening, hopefully it doesn't totally alienate you, but we might lose a couple with this. And that is my belief that going forward, The employers of choice, the people who are going to be able to win the war on talent, the people who are going to be able to not only attract the best, smartest, most talented humans on the planet, but keep them engaged and keep them retained long term are going to be the ones that pay as much attention to what is going on in their employees' lives between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. as they pay attention to what happens between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. What I mean by that is your people are people. 
They are not worker drones. They have lives outside of the office. When we think about their progress and their accomplishments, you should be curious about what those goals are. Do they want to run a marathon? Do they want to start a family? Do they want to buy a new house so they're focused on getting a promotion? Do they want to be able to send their kids to a better school so they could use some scholarships, whatever it may be? Moral of the story is your people are people, and the best way to celebrate their accomplishments is to acknowledge that, pay attention to what they're moving towards, and then celebrate with them when they achieve it. Mm. Yes, and uh, I remember that part about knowing what's going on in their lives between the hours of 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. from phase seven. That's one of the places you mentioned, and that's where the employee loyalty reaches a new high. But this, I, I've left jobs in the past because of this phase seven. And you write that uh, according to a Pew Research Center survey of more than 9,000 U.S.-based workers, 63% of employees who quit a job in 2021 did so because they didn't see opportunities for career advancement. Is this even more rare than, than phase six? In many ways it is. And I think the problem here is we think as employers, as leaders, that our employees have the same perspective and comprehensive view of the organization and where it's at and where it's going that we do. The practical reality is they don't. They're not sitting in the same meetings. They're not involved in the same strategy sessions. And so they're not sure what comes next for them. Mm -hmm. Lots of times I go to annual meetings, right? I get a chance to speak at a lot of annual meetings. And they usually start with the CEO or the chairperson getting up and saying, we'd like to tell you about our strategy for this year. And then they outline all the new markets they're going to be in, the new products they're going to have, the new services and this, and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And I watch the crowd, Douglas, and I watch the crowd as they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a lot more to do. Mm. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. We're going to be rolling that out. I'm going to be asked to do that. I'm going to be asked to learn a new service, learn a new product, consult on that, address that, provide service on that. I wonder if I'm going to get a pay raise. I'm probably not. Oh my gosh. Where am I fitting mm. in this story? Mm -hmm. If your people don't know where they're going to fit in your future story, they're not reading along and participating in the same narrative that you are. Yes, and it brings to mind when a company is acquired, every one of those employees is wondering if they're even going to have a place. Yes, and let's be candid. They have plenty of proof that they're not going to have a place. Mm -hmm. And so many leaders say, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. We're selling, but it's okay. We're, you're going to be looked out for. No, they're not. <laughs> Okay, stop. They also are aware of the fiction you're spreading. And I understand when you're acquired or when you sell, you may not know exactly what's going to happen. I've consulted with a number of folks who are selling their businesses. Work it into the contract. Owners, if someone is buying your business, put in clauses into the sale contract that says if they fire people, Within the first 18 months after the sale, they commit contractually to a certain level of severance payout. If in the negotiation stage, the person you're selling to balks at that request, you know that what they are telling you is not matching up with what they intend to do. Now, is that legal advice, Joey Coleman? 
That is not legal advice. Let me be abundantly clear. Nice save there, Douglas. I'm a recovering attorney. Uh, first step submitting you have a problem. There's 11 steps after that. No, but here's the thing. Most entrepreneurs are really creative and amazing until it comes time to an exit or an acquisition. And then it's like they lose all their creativity. The terms that you put into a sale contract for your business, you get to choose. Now, it may scuttle the sale. It may result in the sale not happening. But if you truly care about your people, there should be sections of the sale contract that are designed to protect them. Mm. That's how it proves to me that the lip service you gave all these years of saying you were all about the people will transcend, will carry on after you're no longer involved in the enterprise. And here's a pro tip. Tell your employees. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. This is a rocket science, folks. It's pretty straightforward. Show and tell. Oh, so last one. Phase eight. That's where your employee becomes a raving fan and a zealous promoter. Unlike this from Office Space. I don't like my job, and uh, I don't think I'm going to go anymore. Glassdoor is a website where current and former employees anonymously review companies. And my hunch is that a lot of employers would think that having you know employees who are raving fans and zealous promoters is, yeah, it's a nice thing to have. Uh, sure. But I was startled when I read that 85% of job seekers state that they are likely or certain to use Glassdoor in the future. So Joey, you know, being mindful that nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk about why employee advocacy is increasingly a requirement and how employers can encourage their employees to advocate for you. You know, the importance of the adv- the advocacy phase can't be overstated, Douglas. You know, with all due respect to our mutual friend Mark Schaefer, who you referenced earlier as saying that your customers are your best marketers, I would actually posit that your employees are your best marketers. Oh, and here's so now we why. got some controversy. Yeah, we got a little conflict. Let's, yeah. We can have a debate with Mark and I about this, okay? Yes. But here's here's the thing. The reason I think your employees are your best marketers are, are multifaceted. Number one, they understand the working operations, the ins and outs, all the products, all the services that you offer better than your customers do. Yes. Number two, they are around you more. Okay, Mm -hmm. they're with you all day, every day. Number three, they have better insight into what you need, both in terms of clients and employees. And number four, if you create an experience where this is the best place they've ever worked, when they leave, which by the way, pro tip, offboarding is just (laughs) as important as onboarding. Yes. When they leave, if you don't light a match and burn the bridge of the relationship and instead you stay in contact with them, you continue to be involved in their career, you continue to support them. Not only do you increase the likelihood of boomerang employees, that's employees who leave, go get skill sets otherwhere and then come back and bring that knowledge back to you, which is incredibly valuable, but you also increase the likelihood that they are out in the marketplace singing your praises. Often those employees go get embedded at other companies that become future clients. Often they're out in the world and they're seeing and spotting great talent that would be a good fit to either fill their role or other roles that they know are involved in the organization. Your employees have the potential to be remarkable advocates. That, in my estimation, is the goal that every employer should have every time they hire an employee, which is, what can I do? to turn this person into a raving fan for our organization and keep them a raving fan even when they're no longer on the payroll. And if you begin with the end in mind, that's the end right there. So 
Joey, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I hope it would be that when it comes to your employees, I know that you're thinking about them a lot. I know that you're spending a lot of time worrying about them and managing them and trying to figure things out for them. Make sure you're showing as much as you're telling. Give them physical, tangible proof that they matter, that they're valued, that they're seen, that they're heard, that they're appreciated. That is what all human beings are looking for, and it's not that hard to deliver. And if the listener's saying, well, Joey, like what? Can you give me an example? Yes, it's all in the book. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all there, people, please. And again, if it doesn't work for you, he's going to refund your money. So anyway, he can't refund your time, but it will be time well spent reading it. Uh, we're almost out of time. Joey, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Oh, Douglas, I am a confessed, full-fledged book addict. I love books. I love authors, too, that come to mind Well, this is your podcast. These yeah, are your this people. is my show. That's why I say I'm a loyal listener, right? I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. I'm, I'm not just a guest. You know, I'm a customer as well, as they say. <laughs> like Victor um, I am. Yeah, exactly. Here's the thing. Two great books. Number one, my good friend, Michael Bungay-Stainier, just had a book come out called How to Work with Almost Anyone. It is a guide to navigating your relationships. It's uh, written by a fascinating writer and facilitator and just all around amazing human being that helps you to figure out how can you create those more deep and meaningful connections with your coworkers so that they become colleagues. Coworker means we all work for the same place. Colleague means we're friends who happen to work for the same place. So great book. And the other one I want to plug is a book that's not even out yet, but I've actually had the pleasure of starting reading an advanced copy by our my good friend and I know former guest on the show, Mike McCallowitz. The book is called All In, How Great Leaders Build Unstoppable Teams. It doesn't come out until January of 2024, but I'm telling you, go online, buy a copy now, get this in the cart pre-order because you are going to want to figure out and learn from the master how to build those unstoppable teams that will make your organization great. Mm, great. At marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including the books you've mentioned, your site, your past uh, visits to the Marketing Book Podcast, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. Listeners, please do me a big favor and reach out in some way to your fellow podcast listener, Joey, and congratulate him on this phenomenal book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And uh, guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from uh, the listeners. And just like Joey likes hearing from the readers, let him know you listen to this so he'll come back. This can't be the last book he's going to write. And, you know, the guests really like hearing from Marketing Podcast listeners and not just because they're so ridiculously good looking, Joey. And if you are listening on your smartphone, you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention. The author is Joey Coleman. Joey, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, it is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great conversation. But with all due respect, most important, thanks to all of you listening. So appreciate your investment of time. I wish you the very best as you go out and create remarkable experiences for your employees in the first 100 days of their journey and beyond. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.